Welcome to the Retail Exchange Podcast. Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Retail Exchange Podcast, coming to you from Rome at World Retail Congress 2022, with me, Carl McKeever, and Mark Faithful. In case the World Retail Congress is not on your radar, there are a few more significant gatherings of the industry. The last few years have brought profound, powerful change to retail. At this year's event, retail leaders, advisors and influencers from every continent presented and debated the key factors influencing retail success in an age of change and, more importantly, for the future. Carl will be talking to some of those speaking and attending this three-day retail event to find out what innovators, originators and creators have in store to meet the upcoming challenges and stay ahead. So, all that to come on this special edition of the Retail Exchange podcast here at World Retail Congress 2022 with me, Carl McKeever, and Mark Faithful. And hello here from World Retail Congress in Rome. Mark, it's been a two-year wait for this event and it's not disappointed. What have you made of the event? I think that although it's possibly a bit early to say it's post-pandemic, it's certainly a period where people are now living with a pandemic. And I think retailers are looking forwards. They're thinking about some of the things that were exposed. I think particularly the supply chain and about perhaps bringing manufacture or supply nearer to home. That was a big issue. That also ties in with sustainability. Uh, and again, obviously sustainability was a huge uh, issue here. And, you know, it seems to me that a lot of the retailers here have weathered the storm quite well and they're definitely ready to move forwards now. I think that's right. And, and similarly, Perhaps, you know, many people were at this stage hoping to look forward to a smoother path, perhaps with the worst of the pandemic behind them. But of course, now we've had a whole range of new crises. And perhaps that's actually one of the new themes that's emerged too, is that, you know, business as usual must factor in more risk management because there's a lot more risk on the horizon. Yes, I think you're right. I think that resilience came out a lot. And I I think that you're absolutely correct. The war has really shaken everyone just at a point where there was some signs of normality. Perhaps is making people reflect that really they've got to be ready for any eventuality now because the world just does seem to be becoming more and more unpredictable. People are obviously keen to be back and it's you know, great to see people looking so excited and engaged and really you know, immersed in their conversations. But for me, you know, I've been, you know, had the real pleasure of sitting and meeting so many interesting people. And, and really, you know, all the hard work they've done over the last two years has clearly energised them. Yeah, they're tired, there's been a lot of challenges, but it's energised them about what they can do, really, when they're really up against it. And for me, a final one to end on, and it's completely trivial, but I've seen some amazing shoes, some fabulous outfits, and I've seen people really in party mode. Georgia Laybourne, Senior Director International Marketing of Manhattan Associates, hosted an interactive workshop at this year's event, exploring how to create exceptional customer engagement. I spoke to her before the workshop to discuss the art of the possible and how to balance process, people and tech. Georgia, welcome to World Retail Congress. So how do you think that retailers can empower store associates um, with smarter task management? Clearly at the moment there are some challenges around um, staff shortages. Um, we're having in different uh, waves of COVID that come along and give us unexpected surprises in terms of resources which are available to be able to assist people, etc. The airlines themselves are struggling to be able to find people not just to get onto the planes, but also to check people in and to handle bags, etc. Um, how do we get retailers to see the light that they can do more with less, and the less being fewer staff resources? Oh, I have had a 
a huge thing about stores for several years now because I find that the stores are quite um, old-fashioned in the way they're approaching uh, store associate behaviours and also technology and also how they manage customers in the store. The, the store associate has to be connected. They have to have a device which enables them to be the font of all knowledge about the product that they're selling, about the availability of the product, about price promotions, about customer history. It's imperative that they have that ability. And if you think about an Apple store, that for me is the store of today. Are all these associates wandering around with their connected technology so they can answer any question? There's also a self-serve opportunity, and it's not just about an endless aisle kiosk that you put up, but um, a device that can actually, a customer can go in and, and activate themselves, place orders, make payments, without actually needing that human interaction if that's the way they choose to do business. Right. But from a task management perspective, for me, it's not about reducing the number of store associates. It's about making them more productive. And getting smarter by the sounds of it. More smarter and more capable and more connected. For me as a consumer, two of the worst things that I find is when you have an out-of-stock situation and a bored store associate says, oh, I'm sure you can find it online and waves you away. Mm. Well, as far as I'm concerned, they've just lost a sale. And then the other challenge that I've experienced recently is... They were out of stock, but they were happy to order it for me online. But it took forever because they had this old system that wasn't connected. I could have gone onto my app yes. and done it in a nanosecond, but the store associate wouldn't have got credit for it. Yeah, yeah. This credit thing, the retailers have to get rid of that. Yeah. It doesn't and of course, the consumer in many cases now coming into stores, very, very charged with all the information they need for themselves. You know, they're very familiar with their own account details, their order history. Absolutely. They're checking availability, etc. So what they're expecting is all the things that they can't do for themselves uh, as, as, as the reason what they're interacting with the person in the first place. We had a very funny um, situation a few years ago where we put out a call to action for retailers. This was in the Netherlands where we said, we, we reckon that your customers know more about your products than you do in the store. And one retailer who shall remain nameless came back and said, no, no, we will give our customers a rebate on the products they buy if they know more than our store associates. Wow. But they had to cancel that after 24 hours because they ended up losing money. Yeah, because it, it was, And they realized... Because it was working so well. <laughs> and they realized that they, they weren't they hadn't empowered their store associates right. sufficiently well enough. And it's crucial. You, yeah. you want information when you go into a store. So, so in a kind of a, a, in a curious way, a good learning exercise for them, though, because perhaps what it revealed was the fact that there was more support that was required for their store associates um, so that they you know, ha had fewer instances where they were giving the customer money, essentially for getting a lack of satisfaction. And if you empower the store associate and you train them up and you get them on the right page, they'll make more money for you. Yeah. There is an upsell opportunity. Shopping is fun. People don't always do it just because they need it. They do it because they're trying to scratch an itch. Yes, yes. Um, so a, a good store associate will be able to upsell and they will be they will be worth the money that they are paid. But I suppose we shouldn't forget that the very fact that people have made a purchase online and they've come into a store to uh, collect 
they're trying to collect the very, in a sense, almost practical, convenient thing that they've done for themselves. Maybe what they're also looking for is to be inspired, to see something new, and as you say, to almost have their uh, impulse senses stimulated so they'll buy something more. I always think that there's a certain amount of amateur psychology that's needed in a store associate because you need to be able to gauge, are they just rushing in and they don't want to be bothered? Yeah. Or are they up for a chat and a bit of entertainment? Yes. And, and as an individual, I could be in one of two moods, depending on what day of the week it was. Yeah. Sometimes I want to just get the job done. Other days, I want to browse and you know, have some I call fun. these people with an announced um, ESP. They are experiential salespeople. Oh, like so it. what that means is, is when they're coming, uh, a customer comes to them, they're actually going to clock them. They're going to try and read their mood, look at their body language, look how flustered or hurried they are. And through a few questions to begin, they can establish quite quickly whether that's going to be a very transactional interaction that they have with those, uh, that, those guests or whether it's going to be something which is much more conversational, where there's an opportunity to talk to them. So I think developing your ESP or your uh, experiential you see, this salesperson... You two things you've now created for retail, ESP salespeople and curbside pickup for... For shopping centres. Excellent. Oh, we're creating the future of retail. <laughs> Live. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, a terrific um, conversation. Um, it's been so great that you stopped by today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I'm so glad I've been allowed out again. <laughs> Thank you. World Retail Congress pillar partner, Railsbank, unveiled some of the key findings from the exclusive report at the event, examining changing consumer behaviour and how retailers and brands can build a wider and deeper relationship. Cole caught up with Railsbank co-founder and CEO, Nigel Verdon, and his COO, Louisa Murray. So Nigel, tell me, we're evolving post-pandemic. Everyone's getting used to kind of getting back out there again and doing all the things we love to and enjoy. What have we learned and what are those behaviours which you hope will stick um, as we now move forwards? What we've learned is uh, we like each other. And when we, the first conference we went to post-pandemic, I think it was money 2020, and it was like everybody had just got back first day at school and had seen all their friends. Yeah, all that normal conference fatigue was yes. gone. It was, and, and this whole, we've learned that we are social people and we do need that. So uh, we, one of the big learnings for ourselves was also making sure the mental health of people who are staying alone. Uh, classic quote from one of our team was, I'm gonna kill my children and my husband very soon. I need to get back to work. And, but, and so the, the, uh, we've, we've learnt how to work remotely. I think we've learnt uh, how to deal with psychology and the mental uh, issues that can uh, turn around with being loneliness as well. And we've learnt, I think, to give people back their time. Mm. And so it's forced a better way of working, I think, that uh, doesn't stress people out on the Monday morning. Mm. And they sort of like have a peak of work in the middle of the week and they've got more time for themselves, so the work-life balance can actually get better. And do you see then that this kind of blended working approach that we've now established is here to stay? I, I, I think it is, uh, but you, you do need the blend. That's the important word, because it's the uh, uh, just working from home doesn't really work because you've got to build relationships with your colleagues, and we are very social animals in general, and building those relationships which aren't over Zoom We've got a, a sort of very classic one. One of our colleagues, Dov, we've only known as over Zoom. Yeah. And when he turned up to the office, we said, Dov, you're only five foot two. And I'm, I'm at the extreme there. <laughs> but we didn't realise and stuff because we hadn't socialised with Dov. 
So the, it's really about the social side and blending it with also giving people their life back. Because mm. commuting, say, into London for four hours a day is an insane thing to do five days a week. Mm. Yeah, sure. For you, Louisa, is there any other things from the experiences we've just lived through that you hope will live on? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, working's fantastic this way. Um, I think uh, we've managed to grow the company enormously, and that's through the digitalization uh, of everyone. But I think um, the experience, the shopping experience, has changed as well, and, and, and lots for the positive. So, you know, some stores maybe have closed, but we can, you know, turn them into offices, turn them into more community spaces. But I think also from a, a shopping experience, when I go into store now, that's the showcase. That's, you know, that's where you're going, you want to meet people again, you, you know, see the goods, if they haven't got your size. Stores have been forced to, right, we're gonna have a big, you know, warehouse, we can send stuff out very quickly. Um, and we've heard a lot, I think, of how the successful retailers are the ones which were most agile and they were yep. able to really uh, either pivot their store operations into e-commerce very quickly. You know, yep. Some people said that they did five years' worth of you know, e-commerce development within you know, five weeks. Yep. So you know, there's been some real success stories there yes. about how people have kind of risen to the and challenge. And even for the staff as of well. Course, Lots yeah. of them moved from the store to the grocers. Yeah. as well. And I think yeah. that's, that's probably been good for their careers. Yeah, and also where policy was previously, you know, sort of almost driven from the top down mm -hmm. in, in the pandemic, a lot of great initiatives which are here to stay have come from the bottom up. Uh, people working in the stores, mixing with the customers who just knew the right thing to do. Yeah. Mm. That's a, it's an important observation is empowering people to do the right thing. Uh, you can get all sorts of situations which you can then cover. And if you empower them and, and say, right, uh, okay, if you make a mistake, you make a mistake. doesn't matter. You were doing the right thing. You were thinking about the customer. You think about how can we change the experience from, uh, from experience on, in person to the e-com. How can we make that better so they feel as if they're still loved? It's very difficult to love people over a uh, sort of a digital click type yes, of thing. Yes, it's very so impersonal in that very, sense. Very, yeah. yeah. So how do you get engagement? Mm. And that's where video and, and other content and media brought together to create an experience as opposed to a click. Where do you think, Nigel, that um, retailers should be really starting to think about, you know, uh, targeting their, um, their activities so that they can see, you know, who's got the real spending power and which groups of the community, you know, can we be looking after better? Uh, an observation, and I'll take from a, a parallel industry. Manchester United have 1.1 billion fans in the world that they don't know of because they haven't engaged with them other than on TV and, and TV rights and, and that only a, uh, sort of 70,000, Lou, that can yeah. get to the uh, stadium. Uh, so, and then there's away games. So there's a very tiny cohort that they actually know who they are. And so I think the real challenge for anybody, whether it's uh, retail, sports, is understanding their consumer on a daily basis and how do you engage with them. Mm. And, and get closer. Get closer, use I mean, financial tools and financial experiences like cards and everything and rewards and stuff and blending that together. You've suddenly got a lot of data on their daily thing and you can also be making outside of the store still making money out of them. And so if you've got uh, 50 cents per Manchester United fan per month, that's a colossal amount of money. revenue suddenly generated through engagement. 
And of course, yeah. you can also get an awful lot of data and understanding yes. about who those customers yeah, you get are. Get the financial footprint what, of them what they are looking on a global for. basis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in your role, um, Louisa, uh, how important do you think it is uh, to get you know really close to your customer? Oh, I love the customers. And that's my that's my sweet spot. So yeah, for sure. From the beginning, from when you know they come in bound to us, and, and primarily most of our customers are inbound. But you know we have a really slick process. Get on the phone, chat to them, um, and really start to understand their businesses and what drives them. Mm. So we have lots of um, companies that come to us at scale up or you know start up, and it's it's the it's the lovely part of the job, uh, understanding the problems, you know how we can solve them, and you know the the, the hopes and dreams of the customers as and, well. And in the financial sector, many of the products are very similar. Yeah, uh, you could say you know pretty almost. Uh, Identical, yeah, you know, brand, but they are. Brand to brand. And that, that's the beauty of what we do. We provide those products to them, yes. and then allows our customers to concentrate on the nice, you know, funky front ends and customer experience. So how experience. do you create the distinctiveness then? Well, every, every customer. So we have a suite of products and capabilities, and every customer has an idea how they want to use those products, and so they can concentrate on their customer journey. Right. Yeah. Whether they're offering, you know, investment savings. So it's tailored. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not bespoke, but how they use them is bespoke for that customer. Yes. yes. What makes us real unique in this area? If you look at our customers doing a customer journey, uh, for example, a, a car dealership or, say, Kazoo or Auto One in Germany, which is like Kazoo in Germany, they own the customer experience and they need to give a, a relevant financial product at the point when the consumer needs it because consumers don't wake up in the morning saying, I'm going to dream of a car loan and wake up excited about it. I now pay yeah. later. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they, they, they think, gosh, I'm an amazing sports car experience and I'll get something that's fast and everything or I want an amazing functional experience and I get a pickup truck and that type of thing and it could be a fast pickup truck if they want both and so what we do is allow the, the, the customer to put like the loan the financing right in their own experience and they still think it's the car company whichever one it is the yeah the primary brand that they're exactly with. Yeah. so we let the brand own everything we don't get in the way. It's not like a white label where you jump into HSBC thing, which just mm. happens to have uh, Marks and Spencer written on it. Yes, sure. Because you're still going to high NPS into massively low NPS. Right. So we allow the NPS and the, the engagement and the brand and the values and everything of our customer to come through. Yes. And the, the Lego we have in the back end, because that's essentially what we are, they can stack the Lego any way they want in their journey to deliver it to the consumer. But you're still ultimately giving the customer, in a sense, almost a brand and a product and experience that they know and trust, and you're introducing simplicity into the transaction. Absolutely, yes. making it frictionless. Yeah. So it's move friction, and then if they wanted to do it themselves, they'd have to build a finance company and stuff. So they're, they're down 10 million plus bucks and, say, two, two and a half years. Uh, we've had customers go live prototype in two weeks. We had a, a large grocer was able to run an experiment on the Isle of Wight with a closed user group there, yeah. and they'd never be able to do that before. Mm. So we've introduced the concept of lean execution. There's a book, classic book called The Lean Startup mm. for any brand with, uh, with financial engagement type products in their brand. Mm. And they don't have to spend millions and millions, they can spend uh, in, the, in the thousands and get data and say, does this product mm. work or not? So super efficiency as well. Yes, yeah. absolutely.
I've been chatting to Nigel Verdon, co-founder and CEO of Railsbank, and also with Lisa Murray, COO, pillar partner of World Retail Congress 2022. Thanks both very much. Pleasure. For some, this future horizon will require thinking that is far enough out for the world to be different, but not so far ahead that it feels like predicting the impossible. I sat down with the CEO, chair of the store WPP, David Roth, to discuss why brands and retailers should not only respond to the new future, but create it. Hi, David. Hi. Uh, great to be with you. Thanks very much. Yeah, no, absolute pleasure. So may I ask you, um, how would you assess the state of retail CX after the last two years? Oh, well, um, the last two years has um, changed things in many different ways. Um, and I think, um, as we're hearing uh, a lot um, at this conference and when you talk to retailers uh, around the world, it's accelerated some of the trends that were there sort of pre-pandemic. Uh, and I think probably this sort of uh, the foot on the accelerator has really been uh, levelled on some of the ways in which consumers are expecting retailers to be able to meet the changing demands that they've got. And I actually think it's, um, it's becoming even more tougher for consumers because, uh, for retailers, because consumers are expecting retailers to be absolutely brilliant now at every single element of the interaction that the consumer has, whether it's online, whether it's about returns, whether it's about product availability, uh, whether it's about in-store. So I think it's becoming uh, more and more challenging. So there's rising expectations across the board? There is definitely rising expectations. I mean, uh, I think one of the key things is that you, your expectations were set by the sector that you operated in. So if you were in the, and I'm, I'm not picking on any particular sector, but you know, if, if, if you're in the, uh, the shoe sector, you expected very poor service. If you went to the luxury goods sector, you expected very good service uh, and good interaction. I think now it's all been level set by whoever the best is in across all the various categories, and, and that's now what the consumer expects. And is the mindset of the consumer now just to be you know, dissatisfied of a poor experience? I, I wouldn't say it's the mindset, but I think if you're not exceptionally good at remedials, then the consumer has a very short fuse. I think everybody accepts that you know, uh, mistakes happen, things get sort of lost in, you know, in, across various different processes. But if the retailer can't track where that product is anymore or can't tell you exactly when it's going to be delivered or returns products in a, in a, in a quick and easy way, then I think the consumer has a very short fuse. For so payment. perhaps the tolerance has declined. I would say absolutely. Mm. So in a recent uh, survey which you guys have put together from WPP um, BAV, the brand equity study, what has been the greatest potential you've identified to damage brand equity? Um, and, and I guess, how has that changed since the, um, the study was taken? We've been measuring brand equity well, for some sort of 30-odd uh, years. So we've got a, quite a good history now of uh, understanding you know, brands that are ascending and brands that are uh, descending uh, in, in brand equity. Um, I think the key thing is that there's sort of two key sort of dimensions. One is, you know, how strong your brand is, which is about how differentiated you are and how relevant you are to consumers. And the other one is about, I suppose, brand stature. So, you know, the esteem with which uh, your brand is held uh, and the, the knowledge, that's not just about awareness, that's, you know, reasonably detailed understanding of what your brand is all about. Uh, and what we've seen over time is that those brands that can play both in those dimensions of brand strength and brand stature are the brands that have accelerated 
especially over uh, the last couple of years. Those brands that have reduced the relevancy that they have to consumers are the brands that have declined at the fastest rate. Mm. Relevancy is becoming more and more complex because the consumer is changing at such a fast rate. So I think you have to be almost in advance of where you think your consumer is going to be able to continuously uh, remain and retain your, your relevancy. And if you don't, what we're seeing now is that uh, the, the decline that your brand has is fast. Uh, and we are seeing evidence uh, of a, a number of brands that are trying to retain um, rebuild their relevancy and that's a very very difficult job to do mm. and presumably if a brand does make some missteps the consequences can be quite quick in terms of the damage uh, to its equity uh, yes I mean I would say that uh, the biggest area of those is is brand reputation mm. it's a truism to say that you build a brand over decades um, and you lose a brand in seconds mm. um, and to what extent do kind of you know big global events and I mean we can think about the war in Ukraine you know what does that have on the impact in terms of brand equity because consumers are very engaged these days on especially on social media they're all watching the news consuming more of this stuff than ever before and of course perceptions can you know change in an instant really depending on you know how a brand is positioned or its response or what actions it takes given any particular situation yeah and that's why I think you know it is getting much more much more complicated because it wasn't that many years ago where I think brands could sit well outside of you know, political debates, issues of the day. Their consumers didn't really expect a, a response or an intervention from the brand. Uh, I think uh, recent events, certainly in the Ukraine and uh, over the COVID period, our expectations that brands will take a, a very active part in the various different debates. And is um, that because consumers are holding brands higher to account? I think that more and more consumers are choosing brands that reflect their views, their values, their opinions. Uh, and um, uh, I think in that context, consumers quite rightly want to understand what the brand's views are and all that. And of course, some brands have, you know, have built their own brands you know, on, a, on a, maybe a sustainability platform or a, or a social platform. And I think the consumers are wanting those brands to practice what they preach. And if they don't, they'll get attacked for it. And this goes right back to what you were saying a moment ago, just about relevancy and how hard it is. Because, of course, you know, what might appear relevant to the brand could be very different to what's going on in the consumer's mind. And I'd add another layer of complexity to it because uh, quite a lot of the various different issues by their very nature have become very political. I don't think they should be political, but they have become very political. To be honest, brands haven't... Uh, had to work in the political arena, and that, that arena is, is, uh, is very complex. Final question for you, um, David. Um, when next for uh, direct-to-consumer brands, um, what does all of this mean for retailers who've been traditionally stocking those kinds of brands? Uh, direct-to-consumer brands have been popping up all over the place. Uh, a lot of those brands you know, are sort of founder-created. They were founded on a purpose or a... Uh, a new take on a, a, a traditional way of doing things, and they have grown have grown very fast. I think what we're seeing uh, um, when anybody now gets an opportunity to go to New York, um, things are opening up, which is great. And um, go to uh, a, a Showfields, and Showfields is a fantastic sort of example of physical retail that is being uh, uh, created in order to 
help and promote and to create a physical environment for a Bite lot of those... Bite-size, high experience. Exactly, for, for those direct-to-consumer brands. And yeah. I think, you know, again, what we're seeing is that these things are neither one thing nor the other. You can't really create huge amounts of scale. You can get to a certain point with a pure direct-to-consumer. You know, after that, you do need you know, greater exposure. You do need physical environments. You do need people to touch and feel. But certainly from talking so to you... So it's going to be a, com a combination of both of those things. Well, well, certainly from talking to you, you still see that there's a, a place for retail innovation. And actually, far from retail being something we could, should consign to the past, it's going to be the combination of tech and people and high levels of innovation which will make it succeed. You know, we're going to end up with two sorts of types of products. You know, we're going to have those types of products that are going to, you know, in a sense, you know, wrapping up everything we've discussed, that are going to be delivered to you automatically through artificial intelligence, through, you know, the, the, the promise of, you know, the, the Internet of Things has long promised and short delivered, but we begin to see some of that delivery emerge. You know, your, your washing machine powder sort of usage will be integrated into your uh, washing machine. It will know that you've only got two washes left and it will automatically order a pack of washing machine that will be delivered in your next you know, e-commerce deliverer. That will happen sort of seamlessly. On the other side of the, the equation, they're going to be products where, you know, personal interaction is important. Maybe the experience is much more important. Shopping with friends is going to be important. Mm. Um, and then there's going to be middle ground in the middle. And I think, you know... It, it, Lo, behold us as innovators, as retailers, as brand marketeers, you know, if we allow a lot of that middle ground to slip into the commodity end of the process. And I think you know, we as retailers also need to take some of the blame because we've created stores that are more you know, warehouses where the customers walk in and they take things off the shelf and they, you know, now they self-scan it. So you think, well, I might as well get all this delivered to me. So if we can't create experiences that convinces consumers that it's uh, for this particular item, it's much better to uh, shop out than shop in, then, you know, more for us. So some exciting things to look forward to. Exciting things to look forward to for those retailers that are going to be, they're going to succeed and prosper in, in the years ahead. So um, don't take your foot off the accelerator of, uh, of innovation. Wonderful. David, thank you so much. David Roth, CEO of The Store, WPP. Many well, thank thanks. you very much indeed. It's an absolute pleasure and delight. The event welcomed back one of its most popular speakers. Ira Kalish, Chief Global Economist at Deloitte, spoke to Carl to share his expert views and analysis of the economic conditions and challenges that retailers have to be aware of and plan for. How would you assess the conditions for the coming months? There's clearly lots going on and lots feeding into what's happening out there. Well, there's a bit of irony in that in Europe and North America, the economies appear to be growing at a pretty good pace with uh, strong, tight labor markets, rising wages, uh, pretty strong consumer demand. Uh, but at the same time, um, we're experiencing the highest inflation we've seen in 40 years. We see central banks rapidly tightening monetary policy. There's a terrible war going on, which has led to a dramatic surge in commodity prices uh, creating the risk of even greater inflation, but at the same time, slower economic growth. So it's kind of a mixed bag, I guess you could say. I speak to many of our clients who are terribly worried that we're heading toward a recession. And yet, if you look at what's going on in equity markets, equity prices have rebounded sharply, suggesting that investors are relatively confident. Mm. I'm not sure I can explain that. So a real paradox, actually. Yes, indeed.
Um, and markets and companies very specifically hate uncertainty. So Indeed. I suppose one of the things is, is, is what measures will people be taking to try and mitigate uncertainty as much as possible? That's actually a very good question. Um, one of the uncertainties is the reliability of supply chains, which popped up during the pandemic and prior to the war in Ukraine appeared to be receding somewhat. And yet the war itself has exacerbated supply chain disruption, uh, as well as the current outbreak of the virus in China, that too has exacerbated supply chain disruption. So as a consequence, what I'm seeing, at least anecdotally, from many global companies uh, is an effort to make their supply chains more resilient through diversification. So we are seeing companies reduce their exposure to China and increase their exposure to other places like Southeast Asia or India or Mexico or even bringing some processes back to their home markets. We have seen in the past year companies fearful of supply chain related shortages, boost inventories of inputs and commodities, which made sense for each company individually, but when every company does that, it actually exacerbates the overall problem. Hence, I guess, a very real example, <coughs> the shortage of chips, which then fed That's into right. the auto market. Right. Now, the shortage of chips um, has another aspect to it, which is that during the pandemic, when many of us were working and shopping from home, there was increased demand for information technology. So hence the increased demand for chips. So large was the hoarding of chips that it led to a shortage for the automotive industry. Uh, and we saw a sharp drop in production of automobiles and a very sharp rise in the prices of both new and used automobiles. Uh, it's interesting to me, for example, that in the US where I live, uh, in the summer, the surge in the price of used cars accounted for a third of all the inflation we were experiencing. With the, uh, the pandemic, we hope nearing its final stages, uh, although I say that with some caution, because of course many markets are seeing uh, rising cases. Yes. Uh, we're seeing major markets closing down. Um, Shanghai, as you mentioned, 25 million people, but not the only city in China which is affected. Right. When you start to add up those numbers, they're very big numbers indeed. That clearly is still going to have a, an impact in terms of global output for the rest of this year and possibly next. Absolutely. The zero tolerance policy toward the virus in China, whereby if even one person in a factory or at a port is found to be infected, they sh shut down the entire facility. If just a few hundred people in a big city are infected, they lock down the entire city. That alone is having a big negative impact on the Chinese economy. It suppresses consumer demand and also seriously disrupts production and distribution of goods. And as that now is taking place, this will have a cascading effect on global supply chains. Mm. And of course, so many companies have moved to a model around just-in-time supply chain management. Indeed. That if there is interruptions and disruptions in those supply chains, surely it begs into whole uh, question the, the concept of globalization and right. to what extent people can be reliant on those systems uh, in, in the times ahead. Right. And indeed, the disruption we've seen both from the 
trade wars in the last few years prior to the pandemic, the pandemic itself and now the war in Ukraine, these things have led some observers to suggest that now we're heading into a new era of deglobalization. I don't think that's the case. Rather, I think globalization itself is pivoting to a somewhat different model, whereas in the past, you're right, the focus was on uh, just in time, on having the lowest cost and the highest speed. And that will still be important, but now it will be also important to be diversified and resilient and redundant. So we may not have the lowest cost and the highest speed, but those will still be important issues. But we will get increased reliability. We'll get increased reliability, we may get increased costs, and maybe somewhat slower economic growth, but maybe uh, less volatility. Mm. I think what the pandemic especially did was to demonstrate uh, the fragility of global supply chains in this era of just-in-time. Mm. And what the war in Ukraine has done is to demonstrate how widespread that fragility is. Who, for example, would have thought that a, a relatively small economy like Ukraine could make such a difference? And yet, with the war in Ukraine, automotive producers in Germany can't get certain key parts that are made in Ukraine. Yeah. So they can't produce as many cars as they want to. And in the UK, we now have shortages of products such as sunflower oil, right. with many food manufacturers saying they're going to have to maybe reformulate up to 2,000 products to now take other kinds of um, fats and oils within those products themselves. So exactly. a, a huge amount is disruption again. Disruption seems to be the word which retailers are having to really you know, now accept as part of business. Right as usual and, and right. you know you know whereas in the past possibly you might have had uh, a planning in place for a particular you know crises that would come along in a generation no it's crises upon crises upon right. crises and it all happens in the context of what was already underway which was a massive structural change in the industry driven by technology mm. so even in the absence of all these disruptions we were seeing uh, consumers in large numbers shifting from shopping at stores to shopping online. And then that was exacerbated by the pandemic. So retailers clearly have a lot on their plate. Mm. And, and one of the big themes, I guess, for retailers in many recent years has been about agility. And I suppose the last two years have demonstrated very ably mm -hmm. those companies which have had an ability to move quickly and to think on their feet uh, and to do things which perhaps they'd never th thought of doing before. That's correct. And, and indeed, you know, one major retailer said to me uh, two years ago at the start of the pandemic that her company had had to implement five years of digital transformation in five weeks. Mm. Uh, and yet they were able to do it successfully. And it's been great for encouraging businesses to experiment, to encourage uh, feedback from the floor to the top, you know, rever right. reversing that kind of almost top-down driven approach. Right. Um, but I think what it has put inevitably is more costs into businesses. Profitability has been harder because there's been more costs as well, even on the retail side, in terms of those businesses that were able to stay open, but huge amounts of additional costs in terms of keeping their businesses you know, safe and fit for their workers and, and for customers. That's true. However, now that we're facing a new and hopefully temporary uh, period of very high inflation, now, I'm old enough to remember the 70s and the early 80s when we did have high inflation that lasted a long time. And one of the hallmarks of that was pretty good profitability for retailers uh, because consumers become less price sensitive. Mm. So retailers 
and their suppliers don't have to be as cost effective. They don't they can get away with raising prices because consumers come to expect that that's the world that they live in. Yes, and there's a general kind of almost expectation that uh, that, that will happen. Now, I, I'm expecting a, a gasp of surprise here when I tell you this, but I'm also similarly able to remember the 1970s. Um, <laughs> I would not have have believed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will add context to that, though, and say as a young boy, <laughs> I remember very much um, the things that we did around the home and at school in our everyday life around reducing um, energy use, you know, a drive to turn off light switches, you know, to turn the central heating down by a couple of notches or two, to, you know, put a sweater on if you were cold, um, etc. Right. You know, in a sense, some of those good practices that we'd adopted, um, we, we lost along the way. I'm not sure I agree with that because one thing that happened, you know, in 1974, the price of oil quadrupled, and then it doubled again in 1979. So it was basically an eight-fold increase in the price of oil, which was a huge disruption. It created two big recessions, but it did lead both businesses and consumers to permanently change their behavior. And there was a lot of investment in energy efficiency so that today we use far less oil per dollar or pound of GDP than we did back then, right. which means that any given increase in the price of oil today has less of an onerous impact on economic activity than was the case 50 years ago. Yeah, but I guess in practical terms, the bite to the consumer is in many cases the same because if you're spending more on gas or petrol or any of your home heating bills, there's less disposable income Indeed. to be able to then go shopping. That's true. To, to what extent do you think the pandemic um, price uh, inflation that we've been seeing recently and, and very recently, the dreadful um, scenes we've been seeing coming from Ukraine, are having a kind of a long-term pervasive effect in terms of the consumer psychology around people possibly holding back, being more cautious, you know, being careful, you know, in a sense, anticipating that there's always some bumps in the road but making sure that they don't get caught out themselves. I don't know. I guess it, it will depend on how, how long this crisis lasts, how long the high inflation lasts, uh, how much of a negative impact these crises have on GDP growth. The reality is that in the pandemic, because of strong government support, households for the most part did reasonably well. In many countries, both yours and mine, there was government support for households. People saved a lot of the money they got. Even people that didn't get support saved a lot of money because they cut back on spending on services. So the end result is that today, there's an awful lot of money in the bank. Mm. Uh, so even though consumers are facing higher energy costs and prices rising faster than wages and they're falling behind, they do have that massive pool of savings to tap into, which will help, uh, I think, to buffer the negative consequences of what, what's going on. I think we are resilient and I think we will see better days ahead, but it, what we have seen in recent years is greater volatility. So some things could get worse before they get better. Thank you very much for sharing your insights. And it's been a pleasure to have you here on the Retail Exchange Podcast. Thank you, happy to be here. Retail Industry Association Eurocommerce represents retail across 27 European countries. I spoke to its Director-General, Christelle Delberg. Welcome. Thank you. I'm very happy to be there with you. 
Christelle, could we begin by, first of all, you telling us something about Eurocommerce? Uh, what is the business and what do you do? So Eurocommerce is the main European association for retail and wholesale in Europe. We represent or we bring together national associations representing retail and wholesale, um, such as the British Retail Consortium in, in the UK, um, FCD, which is the uh, French retailers, uh, main retailers association. So all of these associations get together um, in, uh, in Eurocommerce. We also represent 35 leading retailers in Europe in food, non-food, um, but also store-based or uh, online and, uh, and nowadays omnichannel operators. And the kind of support and services that you provide to people within your membership include? We are the main advocacy, our main activity is advocacy for our members, so we represent the interests of the sector towards the European institutions, the European Commission, the European Parliament, um, some of the member states' delegation. We are also a main uh, partner for discussions with other business organisations, some manufacturers, uh, NGOs, uh, media as well. So the voice of the consumer, the voice of the brands, and, and how you bring uh, aspects of uh, legislation, change, etc., to the attention of, of our leaders. Absolutely. And nowadays, uh, it's all the more important to get uh, our sector increasingly uh, and better, better recognised. So we were recognised as an essential ecosystem during the, the pandemic, and uh, it's very important, given the challenges the sector is, uh, is facing nowadays, to keep that momentum and keep that level of interest. Mm. And I think it's an interesting point you raise there, because, of course, during the pandemic, um, everyday grocery store workers were really elevated in terms of their perception by their consumer locally. You know, people who were uh, working hard to make sure that the shelves remained stocked and that people could buy all the goods they needed. Suddenly these be people became food heroes locally. Yes, absolutely. And uh, the level of commitment uh, has been tremendous and extraordinary. Uh, and our sector got a lot of praise for that. Uh, what was uh, looking forward uh, and looking to the future, as we're going to talk about it later on in the discussion, as we are moving from one crisis to another one, is to, to maintain uh, that level of, um, of, of interest and, uh, and, and, and recognition. Mm, absolutely. So, so let's look ahead, as you um, suggest. We're going to talk a little bit about um, what, what happens next. So do you think, in a sense, almost having to have a separate strand of the organisation, whichever it is, big or small, that is essentially sufficiently agile to be focused on whatever is the next big emerging crisis, almost needs to be set up to run in parallel alongside whatever is the day-to-day -day trading strategy and also those teams which are looking ahead at innovation and new store development and, and, and those things. Because almost crisis it seems to be increasingly becoming hard-baked into how businesses are having to manage and get organised. Absolutely. And um, one point which is very important is not to lose, lose sight of over the long-term perspective. And as you mentioned, the need to continue to innovate, the need to continue to invest. Um, key challenges around digitalization are there. Uh, business models are transforming tremendously. I mean, we are hearing it uh, these two days uh, and, and in all retail conferences. Uh, sustainability, the challenge is there and we, it has to be addressed. Um, skills is how do you make sure that you have the right people that are 
with the right skills that are properly equipped and how we are, we are able to also equip people uh, for, for the transition of, of the model as well. And the energy transition as well. Um, retail is a fantastic resource uh, in terms of in investment into solar panels, um, renewable energy. So how do we ma manage that transition as well into the energy transition? Crisis management uh, will require a lot of agility from a business side, uh, but also it's very important to make sure that they have the capability to invest in the longer-term challenges. And that's, that's one of our key asks of, as Eurocommerce uh, towards the policymakers, so policymakers being our main audience in, in Brussels. And, uh, and, and making sure that through the recovery plans, uh, through the support schemes that they have for businesses, that our sector becomes a priority. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and uh, you know, it's almost uh, impossible to pick any of these individual events and, uh, that are happening right now and say, you know, are any of them more or less important. But I guess at the end of the day, certainly from a retail perspective, um, the cost of living matters and the cost of living is, is rising sharply in many countries now. Um, and we're seeing that as an impact of um, countries opening up again post-pandemic. And the, but the impact in terms of supply chains and, and whether or not goods can freely move and whether companies have got the raw materials, etc., that they need to, to produce those goods. All of this is having a massive impact in terms of disposable income for consumers. To, to what extent do you think that this will play out in the grocery sector in, in, in the coming months? What we expect, and uh, this is part of the study that we just, uh, we're just launching with McKinsey, in partnership with McKinsey, on the state of grocery uh, retail. What we have identified is that there is greater uh, consumer polarisation, and that's that gap uh, between the, um, the, the wealthier consumers and the lower income consumers, that gap has widened uh, in the course of last year as inflation was, was going up. So, so, so your point about the cost of living is, is a really valid one. What, what CEOs uh, expect in the industry is that there will be further pressure for price as a key determinant for purchases, uh, as consumers have their purchasing power under more and more pressure, in particular out of higher energy costs uh, that are going to, to impress on their, uh, on their incomes. On the other hand, we also see some of the uh, higher income parts of the consumer base uh, who are going to be looking more into, continue to be looking at quality, uh, looking at more sustainable uh, products. And that's a very encouraging sign um, because as we said, sustainability is a major challenge that needs to be, that needs to be addressed. And, um, and the relationship that we have with the consumers is, is very important in driving that, uh, that agenda forward. So, so do you think for grocery operators that they have to become even more clearly focused in terms of what their brand is about or their consumer segment within the market and either to target more, much more specifically and more clearly who those individual segments are? Uh, absolutely. So greater, greater differentiation, uh, greater segmentation of consumers uh, and, and making sure that um, they are uh, looking at, uh, at, at the customers and, um, and, and having the right offer for different types of customers. Mm. But it means as well uh, that the market is offering, still offering a lot of opportunities, opportunities to grow. It's 
it may not be just, I mean, price will be important, will continue to be important, in particular in a high inflation environment, but there, there, there is scope for uh, more than just price. Mm. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's about retailers really being very um, close to who their consumer is and, and developing an offer that's relevant for them. That's retail. Yes, of course. So um, one of the big trends, of course, during the pandemic was um, e-commerce. More and more of us were forced to stay at home, buy many of our regular stuff that we would generally have gone to the shops for and have that delivered. So e-commerce has had a real moment in the sun. Uh, but have the uh, discounters um, who'd been previously really taking market share from the big uh, store-based grocers, have the discounters um, moved sufficiently fast to take advantage of e-commerce and setting up their own um, e-commerce operations during this time? So, so I wouldn't be able to answer that uh, with, with the data. I do not have the data about the, the discounters specifically, but what I can say is that online has, uh, has grown tremendously, in particular in foods, uh, in the food sector, it has uh, increased very importantly across Europe, but it has also increased uh, in different ways depending on the country. So we do see uh, a few leading countries like uh, the UK, like France, the Netherlands and Sweden, and some other countries that are catching up uh, with their online, uh, such as Germany, Italy, Spain and, and, and Poland. And what might be the reasons for that kind of disparity in terms of the relative pace of adoption in those different markets? Probably um, there was already a greater level of adoption uh, in, in some of the leading countries. Like the UK has always been a front runner for, for e-commerce and uh, France has had a, a very high network of um, click and collect uh, for, for many years. So there was already a, a strong base. Mm. And, and some other countries uh, where um, perhaps the relationship element still plays a key role. But nevertheless, uh, the growth rates are there and, uh, and online, is, uh, online is, uh, keeps, on, keeps on growing. Perhaps at a slower pace as we are moving um, with COVID, uh, moving ahead with COVID and, and, and people are quite happy to go back to their, to their stores. Uh, but it is there. Um, it has offered a lot of convenience. Um, with remote working, it has also changed uh, consumers' behaviors and uh, an acceptance of, of e-commerce. And they've, they've tried and tested it and they like it. And as business leaders continue to grapple with costs on all aspects of their business, uh, e-commerce certainly offers an opportunity perhaps to create efficiencies and to serve a, a customer a different kind of way. So you, you believe, I, I think, firmly that e-commerce is here to stay and will continue to grow, but albeit maybe at a different pace. E-commerce is there, is there to stay, um, that, that, that's for sure. Um, as, as I said, um, consumers have been acquainted with, uh, they've learned and they've appreciated it. So it's something that we expect uh, to continue. Um, now, the, 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 the landscape is, uh, is changing fundamentally with new market entrants, uh, with new entrants coming into the market and, uh, and a lot of hype these days around, um, around quick commerce. Uh, which is creating further competition and further disruption in the market. Mm. And for retail leaders, uh, leadership teams who are struggling to balance all of these competing um, 
agendas. You know, when they're sitting around their board table and they're considering, you know, what do we do next? Would you have any suggestions or any any advice? I know you say that you know, you're reluctant to give advice because, of course, you know, everybody's situation is so very different. But again, if we look at almost underlying themes, where would you suggest that those um, retail leaders focus their thoughts and, and energies in trying to navigate their way through? It really is about not losing uh, the long-term challenges. And, and we're hearing it throughout those two, three days in, in the World Retail Congress today and keeping, keeping an eye on the fundamental changes that are happening today in the economy. So beyond the short-term disruption, what are the needs in terms of investment into the digitalization, the transformation of the business? How do I stay relevant on the market? And again, coming back to skills, um, we are facing an unprecedented um, labor shortage and the need for different skills in the sector. So how keeping an eye on the attractiveness of our sector, making it more appealing for people to join the sector uh, are certainly real big priorities for us. Finally, Christelle, uh, we've, we've covered a lot of ground here in the, in the discussion together. Is there anything that you feel that you know, um, you'd like to say um, that we've not covered in terms of one of the formal questions? Is there, is there something that you know, is important to you, a burning passion that you think, you, know, um, you just want to put it out there? Well, I've been working with the, with the retail sector in the past 20, 25 years, and um, the sector has this resilience, but also this dynamism, um, which, which is uh, very important, very, very significant, which is a, a passion. Um, what is amazing is uh, the ability of the sector to, to transform and reimagine itself um, as, as it goes uh, all the time and, and there is a lot of competition and that, that competition is what is the engine for more innovation, for more creativity. The driving force. Exactly, the driving force. Fantastic, thank you so much. I've been in conversation with Christelle Delberg, Director General of Eurocommerce. Many thanks. Thank you very much, it's been a pleasure. After two years of limited international travel, World Retail Congress welcomed a truly global audience. Dominique Lamb, CEO of the National Retail Association Australia, was in Rome to explore the innovators of the industry and discover insights on the global roadmap to rebuild retail. Dominique, tell me, how is the Australian market rebounding from the pandemic? Which sectors are doing well? And which of those are still underperforming? Australia's been incredibly lucky that during the pandemic, they have rebounded incredibly quickly. And of course, you might recall that in the state of Victoria, we have had one of the longest lockdowns in, in the world. Um, we've seen similar things to other places. CBDs have certainly remained depressed simply because, you know, workers are staying out of offices. They like working from home. There is definitely a shift in that space. So you know, foot traffic is down there. But when we look at the verticals of retail, obviously food has gone absolute gangbusters, um, as well as, of course, homewares, you know, technology, you know, electronics, anything that consumers were using, obviously, to nest. And that seems to be continuing despite people being able to go out and about. But we've also now seen a spike in the spending when it comes to apparel, footwear, jewellery, other things that we know consumers are purchasing because they can go out, they right. can socialise now. And, and it's kind of gone back to, we have a lot of pent up spend 
that we haven't been spending on traveling and Australians love to travel and that money is now really being featured, I guess, across verticals. We've been hearing here at the Congress how uh, the rising cost of living is certainly a big issue here in Europe, uh, UK and, and also North America. Uh, Asian markets have not necessarily at this stage seen such a big spike in the cost of living. What's happening in Australia? In Australia, the cost of living certainly has increased and it's something that you know we, we hear across the board, you know, regardless of the industries in, in Australia. And I guess we're at a time where the things that have increased are everything from food to fuel to cost of labour, you know, for retailers, you know, certainly leasing and tenancy continues to be one of their largest costs and, and something that they're really kind of fighting against. I, I think that you know, we're not having a, a dissimilar experience to Europe. I mean, whilst we haven't had probably the inflation rates that we've seen, you know, in Europe or US or the UK, um, certainly there is great concern about wage growth in Australia. Um, and it's something that is, is quite difficult because we have a very complex industrial relations system and, and you know, it's been grappled with by governments. And, and as a relatively young economy, it's also an economy which is quite price sensitive. Um, and you know, Australia has famously had a number of uh, shocks uh, to the economy in recent years. The government has issued um, different levels of responses, whether that's cash dollars, checks out to, to Australian citizens. What do you think is likely to happen next in terms of the amount of money in people's pockets to go out and spend? And where are they going to continue to spend? It's really fascinating because we're about to go into a federal election. And of course, we've just had a federal budget delivered, but it's you know unknown as to which government will actually get in. Um, what we know from the predictions of government spend will be that they'll predominantly be putting money back into businesses around things like digital technology. Um, there will be, you know, cash benefits to consumers that will go directly into their pockets to boost that discretional spend. Um, and there's also going to be a whole raft of investment in small business and then being able to, you know, claim back on tax, you know, far more investment into their business to get it moving. So some of those kind of stimulus measures that we've seen before and those incentives for, for people to invest in their businesses or to go out and shop, uh, you expect that that will feature in the coming months? That will feature in the coming months, particularly when it comes to fuel prices. And of course, that it has huge impacts you know, on our supply chain in retail. But the big question for Australians right now, particularly when it comes to the economy, is who will be in government? Because if we get a change of government, it is unlikely that we'll see as much investment in business. Every, every market has its challenges. Um, in the UK for the last couple of years, we've been uh, working not just through the pandemic, but also how Brexit has impacted different markets and sectors. In Australia, though, I guess there's a different type of challenge which is out there, environmental. You've just had some of the biggest floods in the nation's history. Prior to that, some of the deepest and longest um, periods of drought. Um, how much is the environment uh, as an issue, you think, going to figure in the way that retailers um, take forward their businesses in the next few years? There's no doubt that when we look at Australian retail, sustainability and environment are absolutely in their top three issues that they're grappling with. And a lot of it comes down to the fact that consumers are absolutely driven by sustainable choices now. And, and we know that in our market that, you know, 60% of people will have a look and check what the sustainability measures of a, of a retailer are. So for many of them, it, it's not a matter of when, it's, it's, the, it's a must. Yeah. It's a time where they have to embrace all these things because of course you're right, front of mind is the bushfires or the floods. And a lot of this environmental change that 
particularly for our younger generation consumer, it's essential to their purchasing. And of course, the younger generation are the ones which are most actively engaged in the uh, uh, discussions and, and their, their, their cares and passions about all things about the environment. We definitely have a very strong consumer activism that happens within Australia. So our consumers are very much driven by values and they want to see their values reflected in their brands and, and what is you know high on that value list right now is, is absolutely things like um, diversity, certainly environment, um, amongst other things. So attending the Congress here, it's a great big meeting of minds. Um, people haven't got together in this forum particularly for the last three years now. What are some of the things that you are hoping to hear and learn about to take back to uh, the Australian market? Oh, look, some of the things that I'm really keen to hear about is certainly the level of responsibility that retailers play when it comes to creating trust. Um, and certainly um, all of the sustainability measures or, or ways in which retailers can become more environmentally friendly and sustainable and how that impacts their brand. Um, some of the other things that you know we're, we're very excited to talk about, of course, is things like metaverse and, and just that concept of, of technology becoming you know part of an essential relaxation for the younger generations and, and what that will mean for retailers. Yeah, and I think we're all hearing and seeing a lot more initiatives now, certainly from uh, certain retailers categories um, around sustainability and obviously just in the last couple of weeks there's been another big bleaching event on the uh, Great Barrier Reef. Um, I imagine this kind of situation really does filter into the, the psyche and the mindset of the Australian retailers and they're starting to think differently about their purchasing choices. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that um, we've had new legislation come into play um, when it comes to all of these things in Australia and in fact when we think about some of the modern slavery, um, stuff that's going on within our, our country at this time, Time, there is this greater need to map your supply chain and all of the decisions that you make. It is, I think, not a far reach to, to expect that we are now going to see that kind of regulation come in when it comes to sustainable practices. We know that each state in Australia has now banned plastic bags, they've banned plastic straws, they've banned plastic lids, and they're forcing retailers to make alternate decisions and providing them with education around that. But more importantly, the consumer's demanding it. So yep. we know that at the end of the day, this is going to impact their bottom line. And, you know, they, they have to do it. You know, it's a big choice. And I think we can see that in all of the polling that's been done around voting intentions um, and how uh, issues such as mining, for example, are, are very you know, big topics on the Australian citizens' agenda. And that may, well, too, force its way through into big legislation from whichever government comes next. Uh, I think you're right. I think that, in fact, this election is likely to be decided on issues like environment on issues such as mining, investment into, you know, getting to net zero, um, which our current incumbent government, you know, doesn't have a, a fantastic position on. Dominic Lamb, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The fashion industry is undergoing significant change. One of the companies hoping to help retailers live a breakthrough, fashion-specific shopping experiences, is fashion AI expert, Dressipi. Carl spoke to its founder, Sarah McVitie. Sarah, for people who don't know your business and your brand, please give us a, your elevator moment. Give us your pitch. Great. So, so thank you for having me. Uh, so I'm a co-founder of Dressipi. At Dressipi, we build a very, very precise, predictive AI for fashion, apparel, and sportswear retailers. So what that means is that we are very, very good at predicting what a customer is going to buy and keep. And we then use those predictions as APIs to either transform the front-end experience so people are spending more and returning less and increasingly using them to 
drive more operational efficiency so the retailers are buying the right products in the right quantities and the right size curves so they have less waste and more profit. Excellent. So in simple terms, um, would an example of that be, let's say that you might work with a, a retailer and uh, evaluate their website and actually look what works or doesn't work on their website and whether or not that's influencing the customer's rate of return? So I think one of the key things to understand and the reason we only work in the apparel space is that apparel is very, very different. It has some very complex uh, and complicated challenges. So most of the... AI Can I just flag up sizing for jeans here? Yes, well, exactly. So, 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 one of, so if you think about most AI machine learning that people are using, it's off the shelf, it's something called an item, it's capture filtering. It's a very kind of what Amazon use and what Netflix use. But if you think about how you buy books and films, it's very different to how you buy fashion. So there are a few things that... But if you think about, for a fashion retailer, typically 33% of their products are new every month. That's completely unheard so of. So many options. Exactly. So if you don't have, so if you don't understand those products at a very detailed level, it's very hard to personalize those things you're looking at. So we solved that problem. You've also got the added complication with fashion retailers that when they're buying a product in 5,000 units, they need to figure out how many in a size 8, 10, 12, 14, 16. And they've got to get that right. Otherwise, they have fragmentation, which kills their margins. And then understanding why things get returned, because that also, and, and, you know, if you look at why things get returned, it's, sometimes it's sizing, but typically that's not the key reason for returns. How typical am I in as much when I buy online clothing? I will generally buy two of the same thing in the same size because more or less I can guarantee that one of those things I'm going to be dissatisfied with in some way. So, you know, I'm one of these people that's quite picky, so I'm going to be looking for any slight imperfection. Am I highly unusual or am I a group of people that do the same thing? So, so, there, so if, I look at, if, I, if I look at a broad case, if you look at returns specifically, and we look at when a, the same customer buys the same product in multiple sizes and sends one back, and that's usually about 10 to 15% of purchases. And then you look at when the same customer puts multiple options of the same category. So I might put three different types of jeans or so not the same product, but in the same category and then send some of those back. And that's typically 30 to 50%. So that kind of wardrobing So these home, are people who are browsing and browsing they want a choice. Exactly. And they want to figure out what's best for them, what works with their wardrobe, but really kind of... So that wardrobing piece typically is a much higher driver of returns than the sizing piece. Um, but it does... It, it, every retailer has a very different return rate profile. But we build all of those... If you're only making recommendations based on what people bought and your return rate is 30 or 40%, you're getting it wrong. Mm. And presumably some very practical issues about a brand's website could you know, increase that failure rate. So if colour inaccuracies, for example, Absolutely. or if fit is not described accurately. Yeah, or, or just in the way that they, you know, if some, some retailers have a kind of alpha and a numeric sizing, and making, making it very clear how those things are. So sometimes it's a merchandising issue, absolutely. And other times, so one of the things I find you know, extraordinary today is that when, you, when any of us go to any fashion retailer's site, typically we are all seeing the same products in the same order, regardless of who we are. Like that doesn't happen in any other industry. Any other industry, you get a personalised approach, you get things which you are more likely to buy. So, so the reason conversion rates are lower and return rates are higher is because if my dress is on page 74, I'm never going to get there. So you, so you end up, so it's really important that retailers start to use that. They've got to get their data house in order so that they can really genuinely start to personalise and drive these efficiencies down their business. Mm. I guess a lot of websites have also been built, built in a way where they're very logical and in a sense that, that the filtering and the sorting makes sense. But what they don't build in is kind of the inspiration or doesn't... And the uh, serendipity as well. I think, yes. And often I think what's, what's happening, they've also been built... 
Amazon in the 1990s. So you have a PLP, then you have a PDP, then you have a checkout. But the problem now is that lots of customers, because of social media and Google, they're landing on the PDP. The PDP is a new homepage, but there is nowhere for them to go. So if I've landed there and I still want to have a browse, I can't. I can't go. it. So it's about bringing out and allowing the customer at that stage to go off on a gorgeous, lovely journey that's inspirational, but keeps them on the site in a way that's meaningful. So we can help them do that as well. So, so you're looking intensively at data points here. So presumably you know when we are all sitting on our sofas at a particular time of the day and maybe a particular day of the week and, you know, has certain environmental factors. I'm thinking of oh, late night boozing here. Yeah. You know, does that, you know, can you actually identify when purchases are being made, in what form, on which device, and you can really get that down to a granular detail? Absolutely. So, so we look at all of those factors. And so one of the things that we do, I think, that, that is very unique is that we're not building a kind of the knowledge of the crowd. What we're doing is we're saying, right, that we have about 20 different algorithms that feed in. So you will have your own unique. So every time you land on a site where we work with that retailer, we are understanding your behavior in the time, in the moment. And it's updated in real time. So, right. so, as so you're you, profiling me to an extent. As, as much as we can do, yes. As much as you are accepting your cookies or not, we are then able to say, well, actually, what is it about that shirt that he likes? Is it the fit, the colour, the style, the occasion? Which bit? And then as you click through, we say, okay, it wasn't the colour. Actually, it's the fit for him or it's the size. So, so very quickly, we can build an understanding and deliver on your intent. So, and if, we, if you're a regular customer, I think for most retailers that we work with, 70% of their revenue comes from a small 20 or 30% of their customers. So for those guys, you actually know an awful lot about those customers. So don't show them things that aren't available in their size. There's so many things that are just home goals that they just don't need to do. So it's really about making sure. And But as those customers come back, it's being able to build that, that sense of understanding of who you are and what your preferences are. And if you're never going to wear black jeans, don't show you black jeans. There's simple things that you should be able to do and that you can glean. And I suppose from your unique vantage point, you have the ability to literally stand back and actually look in a much kind of bigger picture. So the retailer themselves are probably absorbed in the minutiae some of the detail, whereas actually you can stand back and actually say, this, this, this is working, and these are the areas where perhaps you need to do more. Absolutely, and I think you know, one of the, where you know, AI is really, I think there's an understanding now amongst retailers that when the AI is trained specifically on a category or on a domain, it is much better. So you know, the ability for the, for the machine to navigate through thousands and thousands and thousands of data points all within your session, like, no human being can do that. So you get there so much faster as well, so it's good. Wow, I am never going to buy a shirt in the same way again <laughs> online. I'm absolutely terrified about how much oh. you know about me. Yeah. It's been an absolute delight to speak with Sarah McVitie, co-founder of Dressipy. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. One of the speakers taking the stage at the event was Ganesh Subramanian, co-founder and CEO of Stalumia, which specializes in AI-driven fashion analytics tools to apparel industries. Good to have you with us. So your model, how does it work? Are you, you're kind of giving information first to the consumer and then you're seeing how they respond and then therefore then taking that to influencing the production. Uh, we are not directly in touch with consumers. We collect the data, public data, and derive the consumer demand and provide it to brands as a software as service. Right. For it's a self-serve kind of a tool which is used by typically the designers, buyers and merchandisers and brands and retailers. 
Right. So, so from that, they can uh, make some informed decision-making around what might be popular, what's going to become on trend, yes. which particular options will be more or less successful than the others. Absolutely. And they can see forward-looking insights. They also get competitive insights, understand white spaces, uh, strategic ass assortment uh, decisions. At the same time, the creative uh, community can look at what are the consumers looking for right now which are showing future signals? Mm. What is the next big thing? Yeah. For two types of needs, future looking and also uh, the current, uh, current needs. And of course, getting that right is so important, isn't it? Because I think, you know, uh, many, many retailers have quoted, you know, we have all of the right goods but not in the right places or at the right time. Absolutely. And uh, in fact, uh, that's a great point, right? How do you also localize? Uh, assortment, right? Uh, brand may be based in the US or, or, or Europe, but they are selling all over the world. Mm. How do you dynamically understand geography level trends, right? There's no one trend for the world. So how do you do that? And that's something is possible. And uh, in some cases, we are going to an extent of zip code level trends. Wow. Right? In, in a category called home and home improvement in the US, we are doing that. So we've been hearing a lot around many businesses which are all trying to reduce fashion's retail carbon footprint. H how do you see that Stylumia fits into this mix? Our fundamental existence and vision is uh, how do we reduce uh, overall wastage in the industry? And, um, you know, we've also been previewed to sustainable materials. A lot is talked about that. But the biggest elephant in the room is, first of all, making the wrong stuff. How do we prevent wastage rather than what do we do with the wastage we have? Right. So, so if we didn't get it wrong in the first place, then we wouldn't have the problem in the end. Exactly. So what we are saying is that all of them are required and we are focusing on preventing wastage using technology, using understanding of consumer demand. And now the demand is changing so fast, right? How do we ensure that the brand and the consumer are coming closer and closer? And that's the role that we play. Right. Amazing. Um, in 2019, Stylumia was selected, I believe, for the Target Accelerator Program in India. Um, and this to support, you know, its global business strategy. How did this come about? Um, uh, clearly a, a great deal. And, and how is it going? Uh, it's great. And uh, we've been part of uh, many uh, such global accelerator programs. And one was Target. We also participated in Lowe's Innovation Labs, which is another accelerator. And uh, they chose us as one of the emerging companies that uh, the retailer could use to solve some of the problems that we are doing. And in many of these companies, what they do is that they don't select a startup unless there is a strategic fit. Uh, not only that, we got a pilot done uh, with these innovation accelerators and uh, we completed the pilot successfully and we are in uh, full engagement uh, with these retailers now. Great. So it's a win-win, really. Absolutely. So I believe you've also uh, now, um, in 2020, expanded into the US. Uh, was working with a company like Target uh, important in terms of helping to you know, make that move into a new territory? Very important, right? If you are, if you are a startup coming from uh, some other place and you want to establish a new market, we need trust and credibility. For all these big Fortune 100 uh, brands and retailers give us that credibility in the local market, right? And I must say that not only that we are learning, and also it helps us to operate at scale. Mm. These are very large companies. 
how do we uh, how do we operate at scale with large companies and i guess in very practical terms people uh, feel that you have a better understanding of them if you also are working with others in the same market no no absolutely absolutely it gives us uh, gives us a lot of benefit in terms of uh, local market understanding i believe you've also written a book could you tell us about that that's amazing how on earth did you find the time yeah i think i would say it's uh, it's uh, selfish i read a lot and uh, the best way for me to uh ensure that i I've, i've got something out of it is start writing it and uh, whatever I, i i i write an article almost every week we have crossed over 280 articles and the book is actually a compilation of those blogs oh. and 52 of them and uh, we're calling it 52 thought starters for the future of fashion retail Wonderful, amazing! I, I'm going to look that up because you, you've you've piqued my interest in that. Um, Ganesh, thank you so much. I've been talking to Ganesh, founder and CEO from Salumia. It's been good to having conversation. Thank you very much. Known for his leadership focus during his time as co-CEO of Whole Foods Market, Walter Rob now spends his time mentoring and supporting the next generation of entrepreneurs through his business creation of Stonewall Rob Advisors. I caught up with Walter to discuss the importance of striving to bring purpose and values to business. Welcome and uh, it's great to have you here at World Retail Congress. Tell me, how important is it for international gatherings like World Retail Congress to be back in person again? Well, I think it's singularly important. I mean, it's been besides the COVID uh disappearance for a couple of years. It's just the exchange of ideas when you're in person like this is uh stimulating. It's excited for me. Ron Johnson's an old friend. He was speaking earlier and I think that you, you just can't replace kind of uh what happens when the information goes in and out and around like it does at these conferences. So, uh irreplaceable, I'd say. So, what do you do here that you can't do on a video conference call? It's called spontaneity, right? It's what humans do well, which is that things you didn't anticipate, people you didn't expect, conversations you didn't know were going to happen and ideas that start ginning up because you're listening to somebody else talk about something. It doesn't happen when you're in a more, you know, on Zoom or when you're not here. There's just an X factor that happens when you're together like this. And I seem to remember looking back to 2019 when this event yeah. last um uh, was held. Agility was one of the key themes and I demonstrated very ably I think by retailers over the last couple of years. 100% agree with you on that. 100%. So when we think now And and that's it's not a little thing. It's something to really step back and say I'm proud of the way retailers serve their customers. I think I think because retailers often thought of somehow over there or kind of on the lower end of the career options. In fact, it's not. It's a it's an opportunity to serve. Yeah. It's and, an opportunity to be part of the community and I think that the retail industry should be proud of how they set the pace for actually meeting the challenges of COVID. And I think one of the big shifts that seems to be in as well is that typically retail has been driven top down, you know, uh, dictates or instructions issued from a corporate office and then implemented on the ground. Whereas actually COVID flipped that on its head and actually many initiatives were actually, you know, formed from the shop floor and it was employees working in the stores, walking working in the malls that actually through their ideas, creativity, innovation, they were the ones that solved many of these problems as as they became real. I 100% agree that I I mean I saw it with my own eyes right the in the uh you know the the concern about the plexiglass with the, the with the H style check stands the two the two uh, team members are standing you know rear to rear so to speak and then and it's like we better put that in the middle so there is some protection for them them so that, you know I think again all that 
that's a particular example where the lens of COVID really helped you to see that. But there was many examples of that. So, yeah. And it's only by being there and being on the floor at the time that you solve those problems. And paying attention to it, listening yeah. to it, paying attention to it, trying to do something, be willing to do something about it. So, and, and in this environment where um, you know, kind of the, the, the things are tightening up and the screws are coming down, where do you see almost the entrepreneurial side within business? Because, you know, for entrepreneurs to flourish, you need good conditions. Um, you could argue at the moment, maybe these are perfect conditions because when we're in a time of difficulty, that's when new ideas really, you know, can have the, their moment. Well, the, the paradox is actually that's happening because there's so much capital uh, out there as a result of these conditions that, A, the power economy the last number of years, the government programs, there's more investable capital being put to work here than I've ever seen. You know, over four trillion put into the energy transformation, now money being put into the food transformation and many entrepreneurs being funded, perhaps even evaluations that are hard to justify to create new products. So you do have the paradox of kind of lots of entrepreneurship, lots of new products, lots of new companies starting up at the same time these conditions are going on. So the question is to what end are these companies starting? What problem are they trying to solve? And are they doing it in a way that has an eye towards accessibility and affordability, as well as just being able to do the idea to do the idea? Mm. And, I, and I think pre-COVID, you know, all the industry talk was about legacy brands, which were shutting up shop, which were finding it difficult, you know, were in retreat. But of course, we've seen in recent years, um, more startups, more new ideas. What do you admire most about those retailers, which are either um, have a long-standing heritage, which are being able to reinvent themselves? Yeah, what, I mean, I know many of the CEOs of those large CPGs, and I think, you know, I know the, the, the pressure and the struggle and, and just the tension they were under every day, 24-7. Uh, it's a lonely job anyways, but uh, the pressure they felt, whether it was for the health of their team members, whether it was the fact they couldn't get their uh, raw materials, whether the fact they, had, they, were, they were not able to deliver goods to the customers, whether they had to make tough decisions on items to cut, the pressure, the pressure was there. And so, you know, I think it just means that the, these companies have learned, um, A, they've learned to uh, rationalize, you know, some of the choices that they've had to make, um, at the same time realizing they cannot compromise, uh, you know, the health of their team members, the mental health of their team members, the inclusion of their team members. Um, and so I think they, you know, there's just, there's a transformation that's happening in American business here. I can't speak as well to the UK, but transformation of American business and lead business leadership in terms of recognizing how it is uh, to do it now than it was to do it two years ago. It's just a different set of circumstances. And do you think the culture is now more open to people being, uh, let's say, more experimental without necessarily having to go through months and months of evaluation of programs before they roll them out? You know, essentially giving people more opportunity to try and fail or to try and succeed, you know, in that moment there's still the gradation of that i would say you don't you're not going to change corporate cultures that are that have been around for hundreds of years overnight um, but you are definitely going to see uh, an eye towards more diversity uh, inclusion equity those sorts of issues are on people's minds and on the customers minds and so there are now laws in california you have to have a woman on the board there are now laws that are forming with respect to directorships and so these are the, the, the kind of frame is resettling in a way that is more inclusive um, and those have to be respected. Mm. You know, there's, there's a, a draft rule now with the SEC which says you're going to have to disclose, uh, disclose your, um, your carbon emissions, right? So in some periods of time, you're going to have to be transparent about that. So these sorts, th these sorts of forces are at work. Uh, that being said, you know, longstanding uh, uh, cu cultural legacy, you know, certain companies, they're not going to change overnight. So no, I wouldn't say there's this great 
this this great re reawakening where we're you know we're all equal and that's sort of, that's not happening. But I do think these larger forces of work are are, are pushing every company to re-examine mm. uh, some of the basic ways in which they operate. So there's a chink of light to change, really. Absolutely, no question about it. You've got to change. In fact, if you don't change, you're going to be gone. I think all entrepreneurs, you know, like to think they're building a business which is going to be successful in the short term, but also, you know, has a, a long future ahead of it. Not everybody gets to that point. What is your final piece of advice that you would give to any, you know, young entrepreneur that wants to start out in retail today that, you know, could almost imagine in 50 years' time, mm -hmm. this brand will be here and we will have established these things. What would you say to them? I would say to them that, you know, that find your North Star and hold on to it with dear life. Uh, in other words, the real reason for being in business, what is it you came here to do? And, and hold that up and hold on to it. And it, it will continue to grow and change as you get bigger and you can see more things, but it's like have that North Star that you use to guide your actions because the moment you fall off that, then it's a slippery slope towards complacency, mediocrity, or just um, irrelevancy. Mm. I would say the second thing is to uh, have the humility to be willing to change and evolve and create and move as, as, a, as a situation dictates. It, nothing happens the way it's planned. Nothing happens the way you write it down and it all unfolds with challenges along the way. And so there's just, um, again, there's no room for arrogance really. There's, there's no place for that. Um, there's, a, there's a place in my, in my estimation for, for really having the humility to recognize. That that's, not, that's not a lack of confidence. That's not you know, feeling bad about yourself. That's just about around recognizing that what the qualities and leadership it takes to be successful is your ability to be humble, to be age agile, be willing to move with it and be able to continue to take that North Star, hold on to it and make it happen. So when you hold on to that and when you truly believe that something is possible, then you can make it happen. That has been my life experience. When you believe it, you can make it happen. Thank you so much. It's been my absolute pleasure to talk to Walter Robb, former CEO of Whole Foods Market and now the founder of Stonewall Robb Advisors. Thank you so much for the conversation. My pleasure. Appreciate being with you. We couldn't end this episode without talking to World Retail Congress Chair Ian McGarrigal to get his thoughts on the return and success of the flagship global retail event. Ian, the first thing, I know that like retailers, you've pivoted, you've done digital, you've done a London summit last year, but it must be good to be back. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, it's been fantastic. It's been a, a very busy three days, but uh, the overall you know, uh, reaction from everyone is just that sheer pleasure at being back and meeting. And all the things we were looking forward to, it's more than that, really, because I think you forget just the power of networking and meeting real people and be able to talk about uh, all the things we've talked about online, but it just takes on a whole different dimension that obviously we've forgotten about over these last two years or more. And interestingly, when we're gathering a group of international travellers, as we do at the Congress, it does seem to me to, this is the first event that many of them have been to and perhaps the first travelling that a lot of them have done. Absolutely. So many of the people, you know, almost every other person, this is the first time they've been on a plane in over two years. So, uh, and I know them quite well and they were on planes all the time. So this has been quite a big adventure for, uh, for many people. The Congress set out a number of key pillars based around the, the big challenges that you saw and the big opportunities, obviously. But I'm interested to hear how you felt it evolved and what actually came out, what people were talking about here. Yeah, I mean, that, that's really interesting because, you know, we worked over a number of months really just talking to retailers and the, the pillars, as we called them, sort of, you know, focusing on sustainability, the changing consumer, changing business models, the economy, society and how retailers change their businesses. Um, they played out really well and so, so many people said they are absolutely the right ones. But I think um, for me, sort of going into 
thinking about the program just as it was about to launch, I was kind of worried that we, we, we deliberately set out to review the last two years to make some sense of it and put some context to it. And I was initially a little bit worried just before we were about to start thinking, well, do we need to go over uh, all of that? But actually, again, going back to your question about being back as a live event, just suddenly that outpouring of the, the collective experiences that retailers were sharing and just the, along with the statistics, it, it put so much more detail. Uh, you know, we had the helicopter view and then the deep dive into all the things that have changed or under pressure in retail that led us then to where do we move from here? How does you know, taking the research that the Pillar Report um, partners had put together really then became that springboard for focusing on where the industry is moving, what retail leaders need to, to focus on now uh, to change their businesses, because that's the clear takeaway from me that was our sense going into the Congress that um, we're about to see a, a new acceleration of, of change. And I think that came out loud and clear. And uh, I think to be a retail leader now, you certainly need to multitask because all I could hear was a series of huge priorities, uh, all pressing, all really important. Even within sustainability, Paul Polman talking about you can't pick on one aspect of sustainability and believe you've, you've ticked the box. You know, sustainability is a whole range of interconnected issues that you have to focus on, uh, else you're not going to succeed in that. But we heard that across the, the digital piece, looking at stores. You know, it's, it's a whole range of complexity that retailers need to focus on. And finally, I, I guess that when we look at this post-pandemic event, we were thinking about resilience and about how retailers had learned from what happened. But what we are learning is it seems that never a day goes past without another big macro, macro shock to the world. Uh, obviously, we've got another one at the moment and that these issues of resilience are more important than ever. And perhaps retailers are just going to have to be dealing with an uncertain world, you know, forever. I think that was sort of a, you might call it a depressing takeaway, but a, a realistic takeaway. We heard that uh, certainly from The Economist, but um, people like Stefan Persson, who we gave the Hall of Fame award to, who's former chairman and CEO of H&M, of course, uh, um, to the, the, the dinner on Tuesday night to 90 retailers, he said the next two years at least are going to be more challenging than he can recall in all his long, long career. But he gave the message that many have said that retail is about resilience. It is about innovation and, and rising to the challenge. It's just that these are probably the most challenging times uh, we've known. But I, th I think I've taken away from this three uh, days that um, you know, retailers are looking at how do they accommodate it? I, I just feel already within, you know, if we met again in six months, you would get to start to see a sense of the plans that are being put in place for how retailers are going to combat inflation, work out how to deliver great value to their customers. William, congratulations on a fantastic event. Great to be back. I think everyone's needed a lot of resilience, but I think the, the fruit of that has come over the last three days. Some great conversations and, yeah, a great chance to meet everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Thanks, Mark. Well... That's all we have time for on this episode from here in Rome at what has been a hugely enjoyable World Retail Congress 2022 with Carl McKeever and me, Mark Faithful. Stay tuned for more episodes from this event coming up exclusively right here only on the Retail Exchange podcast. From both of us, bye for now. <laughs>